0: We're entering into Advent together, and we're going to spend four weeks in this text that we're looking at right now, Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. And for these four weeks of Advent, we will be looking at the four names that are given to Jesus in this text. This week, the name Wonderful Counselor and so on. Next week, Mighty God, and then Everlasting Father, and then Prince of Peace. So much about who He is is revealed to us through those names, and we want to explore that as we wait for His coming when He comes again, and as we celebrate His first coming. And this week, the name we're going to look at, Wonderful Counselor, speaks to that doubt that we all have, uh, that question that everybody kind of asks in a pocket of their heart. uh, Are Jesus' ways really good for me? And we might ask that question for any number of reasons. Even a very solid and mature believer might have a part of their heart that doubts that what Jesus asks of us and commands of us is actually good for us. A lot of Christians have an easy time, I think a lot of conservative Christians especially, have an easy time looking at Jesus' ways and the teachings of the Bible and saying, these ways are authoritative. When God says we must do something, we must do it because He has authority. But we have a harder time saying, not only must we do everything He says, but those ways are, are good. It is better for us to do all of the things that he tells us to do. That walking in obedience to him is not just a heavy burden we must bear, but is actually a blessing and makes life better for us and the people around us. Are Jesus' ways really good? Some of us have parts of our hearts that would say, I'm not so sure. One reason this can happen is because you can get into situations where it just really does not feel like what Jesus says to do is the best thing for me right now. You can be raised in a Christian home and have the teachings of Jesus as far as manhood and womanhood and uh, waiting until marriage impressed upon your heart, and you can believe those things. But then living as a single adult, you can say abstinence is really hard. And it can start to feel like Jesus is keeping good things from you, that his ways aren't good, but they're actually there because God doesn't want you to have good things. And that can feel even more acute if you meet somebody and then you fall in love and then you have very strong feelings for each other. And it begins to feel like, well, I know that this is what the scriptures say, but it sure does feel like this other thing would be a lot better for me. That tempts so many of us into immorality before we're married because there is a sense in our hearts that says, God is keeping something good from me. Are his ways really good for me? To use a very different example, uh, I think if there is one thing Jesus says that all of America agrees on, it's the command, love one another. Uh, Almost everybody would agree with Jesus when he says, love one another. But then when someone you love does something you don't like and you get frustrated with them and what they want is in the way of what you want, I mean, we still have all the flowery feel-goods about love one another in our heart, but it kind of would just be better to just be selfish sometimes, it feels like, in real relationships Because there are parts of our hearts that say, well, you know, this is what Jesus says to do, but it'd be better for me if I was just selfish and went and got what I wanted. Uh, So for all of us, there's great temptation on us to think that his ways aren't good in the moment and in the whole of life. Uh, This is greater today than it was 10 or 20 years ago, because on top of everything I was just saying that's always been true to life, there is also tremendous pressure from some voices outside the church who are teaching very actively, not just that Jesus' ways aren't necessary, but that his ways are bad and wrong. Some are using the word oppression to describe the Bible's teachings, that they were invented by powerful people to keep those who are hurting in check and in line and to oppress those who are under them. And that can lead some of us to feel like we need to apologize for being a Christian and following him. Uh, That we need to apologize for believing him when he says that from the beginning God made them male and female, and this is good. And man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife, and then the two become one flesh, and that is good. And so there is, on the inside, temptation to think that, well, it would just be better if I did what I wanted to do. And from the outside, pressure that says, you people are bad for following those bad ways. And all of a sudden, the heart can begin to doubt are his ways good? Are his ways good for me? And that is what the scriptures speak to today through this name we're going to look at. This wonderful counselor who has come to unfold the truth and shine light into the darkness. Let me give you a little context for today's text before we start to read into it together. Isaiah was a great prophet who we read from often in the Advent season because he spoke so much of the coming King and the coming Messiah. And here he's going to tell us a little bit about what this coming Messiah will be like. We know as Christians this is Jesus Christ who was born of Mary and whose story we even celebrate right here with this nativity scene that is in front of me here. Now. He is speaking to a people who are living under the oppression of the Assyrian government. Uh, Now, 2 Samuel uh, Samuel 23 says that when the ruler in a land fears God, essentially the people flourish because that ruler shines on them like the morning sun, right? There is life, there is flourishing, like the grass and the plants just grow when the sun shines on them. A God-fearing ruler does that to people. A just ruler does that for people. But these people are living under the oppression of people who hate God and hate them. And the result is death, famine, injustice in the land. And so Isaiah describes that not as the sun shining on them, but but as darkness. The darkness of living in oppression. He is going to say that someone will come as a light shining into that darkness. But as usual, Isaiah is talking about more than he is talking about, right? Literally, he's talking about the oppression of the Assyrian government. But he always seems to have more in mind, and so he does here. We will see in the New Testament that this light of the world is not just saving Israel from oppression, but is saving all of us of the oppression of sin and death and our great cosmic enemies. So into that darkness, here are the words of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Those are the words of the Lord, and today we focus on two of them, the name Wonderful Counselor. Through that name, Wonderful Counselor, the Spirit works to call His people to trust that Jesus' ways really are good for us in a way that no one else's ways and no one else's teachings can be for us. So, into the darkness that they were living in, Isaiah says a light is coming, and that light will come because a child will be born, and that child will be the great Messiah King that they are longing for. And yet there is a sense that this will be more than a human child being born, because of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he is going to reign on the throne of his father David forever, and his name is going to be Mighty God. Like, this king is going to be God, and he's not just going to be a good counselor, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. And so, as always with Isaiah, there's a sense that something bigger is going on here. The New Testament writers will unfold. What is that bigger thing? Well, when Jesus is born, John says that he came as a light shining into the darkness. It says, in him was light, and that light is the life of men. And then the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And similarly, in Luke, one of the prophets rises up and of Jesus' birth says, whereby the the sunrise will visit us on high and will bring to us the knowledge of salvation. So the New Testament authors pick up on this light shining into the darkness picture, the sun coming up and bringing all the light and life that comes with it. And it becomes clear that this is about more than living under bad government, this is about life oppressed by death and sin altogether. Because later, John will say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we go to that light is the life of men to everlasting life. And then he says, perhaps more importantly, summarizing his whole book, these things were written so that you might believe in the name of Jesus and by believing might have eternal life. So Jesus comes as a light shining into the darkness, but he comes to give eternal life. Yes, his coming, his second coming will end oppression. We will not need to worry about people like the Assyrians anymore when he comes back. But so much more than that, we will not have to worry about the consequences of our sins anymore. We will not have to worry about all the wrong we have done coming back upon us anymore. And we will not have to fear death at all all anymore when he comes back. That is true because a child was born. That is true because Jesus Christ came into the world. He died a death to pay for sins once and for all. And he rose from the dead to give eternal life to anybody who would trust him. And so the call I make every week and I will make to you right now is put your trust in this Jesus. Find in him forgiveness for sin, eternal life, and so much more. That's what Jesus has come to do, to be a light shining in the darkness, to give us eternal life, free from sin, free from death, free from oppression. As we zoom in on the four names, especially this name, Wonderful Counselor, what we see is that part of trusting him is believing that his ways are are good. Part of how he gives life and frees us from sin in this life and frees us from death in this life is by giving to us a better way to live. Giving to us teachings that we can rely on. Unfolding the mysteries of the universe that no one can seem to answer and giving a good and true answer to them. And part of trusting him is saying, I don't just trust you to forgive me of my sins, I trust you to teach me what is true and tell me how to live. We'll see that as we unfold this name, Wonderful Counselor. So what does Wonderful Counselor mean, we might ask? What kind of king is he really? Well, you know what a counselor is. A counselor is somebody that you go to to tell you what's really true and what you should really do. You may be in a difficult situation, you don't know what's really going on, you're puzzled and perplexed by it, and you'll go to either a really wise friend or someone who is paid to be a counselor, a biblical counselor, or some other kind of counselor. And when you go to them, you're going to tell them what's going on, and you're going to trust them to be right when they say, okay, here's what's really happening. Here's the truth in that scene. And here is what you should do about it. And some counselors, we will pay a lot of money for those answers because they're really valuable to us. The kings of that way felt the, that day felt the same way about their counselors, right? They loved their Only the rich could really afford counselors then. And they would surround themselves with wise counselors so they could know what's really going on in that foreign land. What's really going on in my courts when I'm not around? And what really should I do? We need good guidance like that. Because there are situations in your life that you don't know what's really, you're perplexed. You don't know what's happening, really. You don't know what you should do. And so we go to a counselor to get those kind of answers. Jesus, he says, is that kind of wise sage who can discern what is really going on in your life, who can discern the great mysteries of the universe and give you the answers, and who can tell you this is what you should do. When he does that, his teachings and ways are not just authoritative and binding and something we must do. They're also sweet and good and life-giving. In fact, they are so good and so life-giving that Isaiah uses the word wonderful counselor to describe him. In the Old Testament, the word wonderful is almost only ever used to describe some great work that God has done that clearly no one else could have ever done. So like the crossing of the Red Sea is called one of his wonders, right? No magician can part the waters of the Red Sea. We read that happening and we shudder and say, only God can do something that wonderful and that powerful. And then through the years, the miracles just stack up, all the deliverances militarily, all of the famines that came to an end, all of the mighty things that God did. And by the time the Psalms come around, they're saying, we will tell of all of your wonderful deeds, right? Those are all these incredible things that only God could do that revealed his power. And now this word is used to describe the teachings of Jesus, the truths of Jesus that he gives us, the counsel that Jesus gives us. So, some people have a lot of wisdom and can help you unpack mysteries. But what Isaiah is saying that this Messiah will have, he will have so much of that wisdom that it it must be God who is doing this. A level of divine wisdom that makes you say, this is like no one else. And so Isaiah's point here is that only Jesus' ways bring life. This picks up on a broader teaching in the Old Testament, which is that true wisdom and knowledge comes from God. Uh, Whether or not you worship God, if you know anything true and have any true wisdom in you, it was God who gave it to you. Uh, The Proverbs and other wisdom books, like the Psalms, will say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The beginning of knowledge. You want to know a true thing? Well, it will come in proportion to how much reverence you have for Him. And then even of people who some of them know God and some of them don't, it is God who is giving them true wisdom. Uh, This prophet Isaiah will talk in chapter 28 about a farmer, and uh, he will talk about how particularly the farmer works. He sows the rows this far apart and he puts this crop on the edge of the field and this one on the inside and he knows just what to do. And Isaiah says he is well instructed because his God teaches him. Like, does this not come from the Father? He says, this does not come from God. So even that practical wisdom that you have, if you have a job and you know something about how to do it well... Inasmuch as you know that well, it was God who gave you that wisdom and knowledge. Because all true wisdom and knowledge comes from Him. If you're a parent and you're a pretty good parent and know a little something about it, whether or not you are looking to God for wisdom, whatever truth you know about parenting, it came from God. All true wisdom comes from God. And so then, when Jesus comes and He is called a wonderful counselor, or even the wonderful counselor, We're saying that that true wisdom that comes from God has actually come itself to us. So now wisdom doesn't dwell upon him. Wisdom now has feet. And wisdom now wears sandals and has a beard and is talking. This is what it means that he is wonderful counselor. Now, that is good news because, well, if you have been to more than one doctor, you probably know what it is like to go with a problem and say, what's going on in my body? And have some doctors tell you good truth. Here is what's going on. They will discern what's going on in your body and say, now, here is what you should do. And that answer give you life. But then to have other doctors not correctly discern what is going on in your body and say, well, I don't really know what you should do or here's what you should do, but, it, but it's not right and it doesn't help and it doesn't give life. You know that some medical advice is good and some medical advice is not good. And what this means is that Jesus is not like that when he tells us what's going on and what we should do. His words give life every time children some of you have figured out that your parents are sometimes right and they're sometimes not right right and you should honor them anyway because they're your mom i saw that whisper there by the way because they're your mom and your dad right but it is good news to look to this jesus and say okay i i know what it is like to have someone in my life whose ways i have to follow And they're right most of the time and wrong sometimes. I know what that's like. But then to look to Jesus and say, in him, I have someone whose ways I must follow who is always right and whose ways are always good for me, right? Because he is the wonderful counsel. He is the one whose counsel works wonders and miracles in people's lives, And so one aspect of faith then is trusting that his ways and his teachings are always best for us. That's who he is. He is the one whose words are always good and always life-giving. Now I want to spend the rest of this time unpacking what did that look like when he walked the earth? What does that look like in my life And what will that look like when he comes again? How will he show himself to be a wonderful counselor then? What did it look like for him to be a wonderful counselor when he was walking the earth? What does it look like for him to be a wonderful counselor in my life? What will it look like when our wonderful counselor returns for us? Let's start with the first one. How is it true when he came to us? Well, he demonstrated over and over again, and he claimed many times to be this wonderful counsel, this one whose word is reliable and amazes everybody. So, we see Old Testament themes picked up in his life. There was a king named Solomon who was the wisest king who ever lived, and people marveled before them because the Spirit of God was upon him, giving him wisdom to do justice. So, here is a wise King and his ways are good. And the queen of Sheba comes and sees him and says, Happy are your servants, happy is everyone in your court. I was told of your wisdom and I didn't believe it, but I wasn't told the half of it because he's that amazing in his wisdom. And then today's prophet Isaiah will say, two chapters after today's text, that of this coming Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of knowledge and wisdom and counsel and might. And the fear of the Lord, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So we have this expectation that maybe one greater than Solomon is going to come. Maybe one wiser than Solomon is going to come. And then Jesus walks the earth and he speaks to a people who reject him. And he says, that queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn this generation. Because she bowed down before the wisdom of Solomon. But someone greater than Solomon is here. He's claiming to be that wonderful counselor that came after Solomon and was greater than Solomon himself. He says in another place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he doesn't say, I know the truth, listen to me. That's not what he says. He says, I am the truth right, so he 's not a wonderful counselor he 's not even in a sense the wonderful counselor, he is wonderful counselor, he is wisdom incarnate because he is God incarnate in the flesh, he is the truth walking around with a voice and hair and a robe and sandals. This is our wonderful counselor who has come. No wonder the apostles will write letters after him and say that he has become for us wisdom. And no wonder they will say in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge because he is wisdom walking around. He is the one whose ways are good. And this is why when he walks the earth, He amazes people with his words. He got up on a mountain and preached the longest sermon recorded in the Bible, three chapters long. It's probably much, much longer in real life, hours long, perhaps. He preaches it, and it says, And when he finished speaking, all the people were astonished because he spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees did. so they're seeing, oh wow, these words are different. These are not like that guy who's teaching in the temple who knows some things and doesn't know some other things. He gets some things right and some things wrong. This is miracle level teaching because he is the wonderful counselor who has come. So many times his enemies tried to trip him up in words. They would ask him questions that don't have a right answer just to get him into trouble and cause grief for him. Uh, At one point, they come to him and they ask him in front of everybody, uh, teacher, good teacher, you you have wise ways. Answer this question for us. They weren't genuine in saying that. Uh, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, Because they know that that's a politically charged question. If you say yes, All of your followers, the Jewish people, will hate you because they hate paying taxes to Caesar. And if you say, no, we don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman government will arrest you as an insurrectionist and then you'll be killed. And so they think they've got him trapped, right? Either his people are going to leave him or the Roman government is going to arrest him based on how he answers, ah, we've got this. And so he says, well, bring me a coin. And they bring him a coin and he holds it up. And some of you know the story. He says, whose picture is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he looks to his enemies and says, and give to God what is God's. And everyone's astonished, right? No one dares ask him any more questions. The wonderful counselor had come. He's walking the earth and just dispensing truth and wisdom because he is truth and wisdom himself. So he came and he showed himself to fulfill these words, to be the one whose words were miracle level true, who could unlock the mysteries of the universe and whose feet we must sit at because not only are his words authoritative, they're good. So in our lives, one of the things we must do then is turn from whatever other wisdoms we have been seeped in and turn to him and his wisdom. That sermon I told you about, the Sermon on the Mount, a big chunk of it, maybe a quarter or a third of it, is him saying over and over again, You have heard this, but I say to you this, right? And he's not rebuking the Old Testament law when he says some of the things. He does quote the law a few times. He is rebuking the Pharisees' distortion of the law, right? What they are hearing, the teaching they are hearing that day. And so he's saying, the Pharisees are saying to you this. That's why not everything he quotes is even in the Old Testament. But I say to you this thing. So over and over again with all these false teachings they had been given by the Pharisees, he says, turn from that, I say this. Turn from that one, and I say this. And the same call is put upon anybody who would be a disciple today. Look at all of the things you have been taught, all of the worldly wisdom that has filled you over the course of your life. and hear Jesus say, "You have heard this, but I say to you this," and sit at his feet, because he's the wonderful counselor. Because all throughout history, there has, in every age been a spirit of the age, and you know the kind of things that people say and the agreed-upon beliefs in the society. They have always been dark. They have always come from below. And they have always led to death in every culture ever. I mean, we can trace this as far back as we want to. If I'm going to go back in history, we could think of of the ancient Aztec peoples and all of the other tribes who were like them. uh, Taught, right? The teaching of the day was if you want to flourish as a people, if we want to flourish as a community, We must pick this many of our children and sacrifice them to the gods so that the gods would be pleased with us and we would be blessed. And we've still got the temples we can go visit all over the place and we can look and see where they rallied up their children and in some cases put them in cages and murdered their own children because that was the teaching of the day. That was what they thought they were supposed to do. But the world's ways and the world's teachings, the, the teaching of the era always brings death. And it's not hard for us to look back on that and say, yeah, that brought death. That was terrible. Right? It's easy for us to say that. And as much as the gospel made it into those tribes, the call was, you have heard that, but Jesus says this, come and sit at the feet of the wonderful counselor and learn the life-giving truth. We could go through history all we wanted to. Maybe I'll give you one more example in history. Uh, In the late 1800s, early 1900s, an economic idea called Marxism or communism spread like wildfire through most of the East, through Russia, through China. And it promised that it would elevate up the poor in the land who were, in most cases, being oppressed by their rulers. Uh, That what they must do is violently overthrow their rulers seize control of everything, and then the people will own everything. The people will form a new government that will equally distribute all of the stuff. Then everybody gets an equal thing and we have real equality. And in many cases, the people followed through. They murdered thousands of officials and rulers in several different countries and were able to enact a Marxist government. But then, under that government, and at least China and Russia and several other places too, the poor who were supposed to be liberated by this new ideology, instead starved. And somewhere between 100 and 150 million people died under communist rule. That's not because the people before them weren't bad. Some of those rulers were terrible. But Ideas, worldly ideas come in and they promise life, but they bring death. Right? Now that's an extreme example, maybe the deadliest idea of all time, I don't know. But on smaller scales, the same thing happens everywhere. In every culture, there are sayings out there, there are teachings out there, ideas out there that promise life, but they bring death. Let me move to today, I'll point out a few today. Um, many would say, right, follow your heart right? That's kind of the mantra of our day. Uh, Even to the point that we would would say, some would say, biology is not destiny. Uh, If if anything was ever anti-science, that was it. But some will say biology is not destiny. Meaning that the way your body is made doesn't really say anything about who you are. Uh, So if you feel on the inside like you're this gender, but your body is the other gender, it's the heart that's right, and you got to follow the heart. And so what you must do then is take your body and adapt it to your heart. And so there are teachers today that would teach children and would teach young teenagers. I know your body is a girl's body, but but in your heart, you're a boy. And so you need to get your body to accommodate that, right? You need to take hormones that will make you more masculine and undergo surgeries that will make you more masculine. And same on the inverse for boys who feel like they are girls. You need to make yourself more feminine and have surgeries that will make you appear more feminine. And what has wound up happening is now those kids have grown up And many of them are looking back and they're saying, that was terrible for me. Like the most tender parts of my body have been mutilated by this ideology. Because the teachings of the world don't bring life, they they bring death. And so Jesus says into ideas like that, you have heard this, but I say to you, this. This. And it's his teachings that give life. He's the one who says in the beginning, God made them male and female, right? That's not just true. That's good and life-giving. He's the one who says man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and then the two become one flesh. That's not just true. That's good and life-giving for people. So, What we must do then is ask, okay, I don't think anybody in this room was raised under transgender ideology, uh, but what were we raised under? Uh, For some of us, we can look back and say it it was the racism of the 1950s that I was raised in. And Jesus says, you have heard this, but I say to you, right? And so many of you tell this testimony and this story. I was raised in those kind of ideas, but Jesus spoke to me and said, no, that's not true. And he taught me the true value of every human being. Uh, It may be, I was raised to believe that the point of life was to have the good life, have as many of the things that I can have, and basically the point of life is to enjoy it. And Jesus says, you've heard that, but I say to you, come sit at my feet. The point of life is to honor and enjoy me, your Savior and your God. That's what Jesus says. What were the ideas that you have been steeped in? What what teachers other than Jesus' words revealed through the scriptures have taken hold of your life? Hear the words of Jesus. You have heard, but I say to you and come and sit at the feet of the wonderful counselor and find life. So that's what it means to turn from deadly ideas. Okay, now what do we do? Like, how do, how do I learn his ways? Uh, the most forthright way that his ways are revealed is, is through the pages of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, breathed by the per, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, breathing them out, putting them on the page, recording them for us so that our God's ways can be revealed to us. And so if in your heart you can say right now, yeah, he is that true, wonderful counselor. His ways are good and they're good for me. That means taking yourself to these words every day, seeping yourself in them instead of in all the ideologies through the social media feeds and everything else, seeping yourself in his words and saying, I'm going to learn his ways because his ways are true and his words are true. That means finding a church where the preaching is based on the Holy Scriptures, So the preaching comes from the Bible, where you're not getting what some guy thinks, which isn't going to help, uh, where you're getting what this text says, right? Opened up and revealed and applied into your life and saying, I'm going to find myself there every Sunday. It means learning his ways, following his ways, and looking to him for truth through the Holy Scriptures. Then... It's not enough to learn the ways and believe them, then we have to walk in them, right? So if he says of whatever it is, this way is good for you, this truth is good for you, we receive it all the way in the heart and then we do it, And so that single Christian who said, who I referred to earlier in the sermon, who says, I know Jesus' ways are good, but it sure feels like he's withholding a really good thing from me can look in faith and say, no, these ways really are good, and I'm going to walk in purity and holiness. That person who knows that Jesus teaches us to love one another, but is just angry with someone in their life, and who says, I know he says to love others, but oh, I'm so mad at this person, right, can look in faith and say, his ways are good, and so I, I can love that person. I can I can forgive that person. That's a little bit of what it looks like for us to walk in his ways today, to trust that they really are good, even in situations where they don't feel good. Now, what will that look like when he comes back? The words of most of the prophets were not fully fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. They will be fully fulfilled in Jesus, but he's coming back, right? And when he comes back, he will completely fulfill them. Uh, If you're new to Christianity, you want to know the teaching of the scriptures is that Jesus has come and he's going to come again. And when he comes, he is going to judge the whole earth. Uh, He will be crowned king of the whole earth. Uh, He will raise all of the dead. So if you're a dead when he comes back, he will raise you from the dead, whether you're his or not. And he will separate those who follow him from those who don't, his people from the rest. And pronounce judgment upon all of the nations in this way. Separating them out like we might separate the good grapes from the bad grapes or the wheat from the chaff. Or just separating everyone out. Giving his judgment and then setting himself up as king over all of the earth. Now when he does that, how will we see him as the wonderful counselor then? Well, there's a passage in Isaiah that actually shows us a little bit of that. I'll I'll read some of it to you. It's Isaiah 2. And he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all of the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. He shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's the same image, right? A light shining, right? Oh, let us walk in that light. So at the same time, he's calling the people of Israel, let's follow him like this now. But he also looks forward to a day when from the highest mountain, like a river crashing down from it, like a light shining from it, where the truth and teaching of Jesus Christ just flows forth and where everybody on earth, did you see, the nations will go to him to learn his ways. So, this is a day when His truth is fully and freely available to all who would seek it. And a day when everyone in the world listens to Him, seeks His ways, and walks in them. So, one day, everyone on earth is going to follow His good ways. Now, that's going to be an incredible thing. Can you imagine a day when, if there are other preachers, where every preacher of the word is completely reliable? Some of you have moved from one place to another. You know how hard it is to find a good and true preacher, right? What about a day when every time the word is opened and proclaimed, it is 100% perfect every time? When you don't have to figure out, are the Baptists right about baptism or are the Presbyterians right about baptism? I'm not sure. You don't have to figure out because everybody will be right and everyone will agree, right? Not only this, but how many of the problems in your life today are there because other people aren't doing what Jesus says? How much of the hurt in your life is from people doing wrong things near you or to you? How much of our stress is because of political leaders and rulers who just don't do the right thing and follow Jesus' ways? What will the world look like when everybody walks in Jesus' ways? Right? You see, Jesus' ways aren't just good for individuals, they're good for communities. They're good for nations. They're good for the world. Not only will you live in prosperity and happiness with access to His truth, but you'll finally have peace with all of the people in your life because both you and them will be walking in the ways of Jesus Christ. One day that house is going to be lifted above every mountain in the world and everyone will go to it and find truth. So we can hang on then. We can hang on in hope. And we can hear this prophet when he says, Oh, house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the ways of the Lord today. Right? We can be a beacon of light in a dark world by saying, One day everyone will do this. But for now, in as much as we are able, we are people who walk in his ways. And look at that light shining for This is why we're the light of the world. This is why a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Because we walk in his ways. And as we do, we shine a light. So the call is really simple then. Trust this Jesus with your whole life. It does not do to say, I trust you to forgive me of my sins, but I don't trust that your ways are really good for me. No, if his ways were good, you should have been walking in them in the first place, and that's why we needed forgiveness. That's part of the whole thing, right? So believe that his ways are good for you. Some who are on the edge of coming to Jesus... They will say, the reason I don't know about coming to Him is because I I just don't know that I trust Him with my life, right? I don't know that I want to give control of my life over to Him. And I hope you can see in these words that it's not just that we have to do what Jesus says, but even if we didn't have to, we should do what He says because His ways are good for people. He's worthy of your trust and He's worthy of you coming to Him. If you're already one of him and the Spirit is convicting you this morning, you're saying to yourself, I don't fully trust that Jesus' ways are good. Oh, friend, take yourself to the God who is merciful and just lay that before him. and Say, God, I confess to you that I don't fully trust that your ways are good. Would you create a clean heart within me and find mercy and forgiveness for sins at his heart? Wherever you are now, walk out of here today confident in this God. His ways are good for you. They're good for your neighbors, worthy of proclaiming to your neighbors and worthy of all of your trust. Let's pray.